there's four countries we've been working with who won't even have the chance to compete. So ethically, Tim, it was a matter of do I go, don't I go, and I just didn't feel right. And for me, COVID has highlighted the place that sport is in society. It's a nice thing to do, but it's not an absolutely essential thing to do. The biggest component of integrity for Paralympic sport is the classification system. Without that, the games just don't exist. And it has also now become the biggest barrier to participation for developing countries. We all know Paralympic Games is, uh, you should be able to expect the unexpected. But uh, at the end of the day, is, is that I know what I need to do. Uh, I know the, the, the training that we have been putting on will give us a great chance to be on that podium. For me, I've been surrounded in Paralympic sports and being able to see how people with a disability get around and do their own business and that also inspires me to do better. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast series. With the Tokyo Olympics completed and the Paralympics underway, I'm Tim Gable. Alongside me is the triple Olympic gold medalist from the 2004 Athens Olympic Games, Sport Integrity Australia's Patria Thomas. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with veteran Paralympic track and field coach Chris Nunn. Chris has served a number of roles in the Paralympic movement, including as the head coach of the Australian track and field team. And Chris has decided not to Go to the Tokyo Paralympics. We'll find out why shortly. Also joining us is swimmer Ahmed Kelly, who's competing in his third Paralympics. Ahmed was born with a double arm and leg deficiency. He competes in the 150 metres individual medley. Joining us is the veteran Australian Paralympic coach Chris Nunn. Chris is now the project manager for the Oceania Paralympic Committee. He's also a mentor for the Australian Paralympic shooting team but has opted not to go to the Tokyo Paralympics. And, and Chris, you have a variety of roles in the lead up to the Paralympics. I, I guess, um, is it hard to be doing it though, uh, away from Japan because you're not going across to Tokyo for the Paralympics? Yeah, look, Tim, this is uh, the first, uh, sorry, the, the second time I haven't been involved in a Paralympic game since 1988. Uh, the only other time I didn't go was when I opened my business at McGregor and ran the swim school. Um, but ethically, I couldn't go this time. I, I really struggled with the concept of the games going ahead. Um, I really feel desperately sorry for the Japanese community with uh, currently what's going on with the COVID situation. But they've invested billions of dollars in running the games, but Perth, uh, you know, I've been working with the Nippon Sports Science University in developing countries to attract new uh, countries to the Paralympic Games. Um, and I think what these games have highlighted for me is the difference between the, high, the, the people who have and the people who have not. And uh, you see at the Olympics, I think the reason, Australia, in my personal observation, why Australia's done really well is we are a country of haves. We have as many resources as we can get. And uh, I've worked in countries that have nothing, you know. So 
there's four uh, countries we've been working with and invested a lot of time and effort that are not going to be at the Paralympic Games. They cannot get there or get back in, without a five-week quarantine. And these people have got minimal amount of work and they just can't afford to do that. So there's four countries we've been working with who won't even have the chance to compete. So ethically, Tim, it was a matter of, do I go? Don't I go? And I just didn't feel right. And for me, COVID has highlighted the place that sport is in society. It's a nice thing to do, but it's not an absolutely essential thing to do. And, and for me, who's spent my whole life in sport, um, it's really, really made me think about what's important. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to spend this time with my family um, who need me here at the moment um, with, the, with the times that are going on. So it's been a really tough decision, Tim, because, boy, have we invested some time and effort uh, into coaches and athletes preparing for these games. So you're a mentor with the Australian Paralympic shooting team. You're also a yes. project coordinator with Oceania. So you, yes. you're wearing a couple of hats. Are you still going to be involved remotely, though? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So we have got coaches that are going. Um, and my role in the last few years, as opposed to working with athletes, uh, and, and Patria will tell you what's what's involved with coaching elite athletes, it's, it's a full-time effort to do it at that level. But I have loved working with the coaches in the regions and playing a mentoring role with the Australian Paralympic team has been delightful. In fact, you know, I could have easily said, look, I should be going. But we put in a better place. We had a technical person who had more knowledge around shooting. So to be able to mentor that um, that team and ensure that the athletes that are going in the right headspace, the, the manager, um, Kurt Olsen from Shooting Australia, is a terrifically well-organised person. That team will go away uh, well-prepared, and I'm completely comfortable that my job is done. Um, I've always argued there's, there's two roles on a team that your job should be done before you get to the games. One is your strength and conditioning coach, and the other is the psychologist. You know, if, you, if your psychologist is needed at the games, you've really got to question what they've done in preparation for the athletes, and that's my role as a mentor as well. My job is to prepare them to go and do the job they've done. It's always been my job as a coach to prepare athletes, and now in a mentoring role, I, I just love the fact that you can prepare it and then step right back and watch people perform and do what they've, they've been prepared to do. So, yes, I'll always be there remotely, um, but the intent is that I, I won't have a lot to do, Tim, because the work should be done by now. Nani, you've um, obviously been around the Paralympic movement for many, many years now and, and had a number of different roles. Just how have you noticed the professionalism of Paralympic sport improve over the years? Uh, Patria, when I first travelled with a team, they used to go away as disability groups. You know, we somebody would select a cerebral palsy team and then somebody else would pick an amputee team and a wheelchair team and a visually impaired team. And if we go all the way back to 1992, uh, the intellectually impaired athletes even went to a separate city for their games. So now we've got totally integrated sport. And I know as myself and a couple of other coaches really advocated, if we're going to a sporting competition, we need to take away sporting teams. And Australia drove that throughout the 90s. We were so fortunate to have the Paralympic Games here in Australia. And um, my background, is, as you may recall, you know, I, I, my first wife, Glennis, won an Olympic gold medal. So I saw firsthand the dedication and the discipline that it takes to be at that level. And no one understands that better than you, Patria, with you know, the, the difficulties and, and injuries that you overcome to be successful. That discipline is something that you have to expect of your athletes if you're going to be a coach. 
Um, and so the professionalism in Paralympic sport has moved significantly, and I really take a lot of pride in what Australia did in taking a really professional team of track and field athletes into Sydney. And if you look at the stats, we won 35 gold medals with that team. The next best countries in the world were Germany and America, and they won 16. We were more than twice as good as the rest of the world. So there's an old saying, you either do it first or you do better. I thought we did it first and we did it better, and now the rest of the world's caught up and in many cases gone past. The disappointing part about where Paralympic sport has gone is the fact that we are now doing everything we can to chase the medal. And it's gone away from the initial concept of what the Games was all about from returning soldiers. Um, there are very, very few quadriplegic athletes now on the Paralympic team. Even the sports that have been set up for quadriplegic athletes like wheelchair rugby is now dominated by athletes like Riley Batt and Chris Bond who have four limbs that are affected but they have a totally functioning spinal cord. And so that changes the nature of the sport and it changes the nature of the way things are done. Um, the introduction of classification for athletes with cerebral palsy, you know, in all honesty, and, and I've been around, as you said, Paralympic sport for a long time, Patria. I watch a cerebral palsy class 38 in track and field and I cannot tell what the disability is. It's, you know, and that's not what Paralympic sport was intended to be, but because of the nature of the ease of care of, you know, we've got two athletes here in Canberra that are incredibly successful is um, Cameron Comby and um, oh, the great sprinter who's uh, just e gone Evan, like Evan O'Hanlon. Evan O'Hanlon, yeah, brilliant athletes. And I will t never take anything away from the discipline, the application, their dedication to what they've done. They're brilliant athletes with brilliantly coached um, performance outcomes. But if you're looking at this from a perspective of the public, you look at those guys and go, well, what's different to them? You know, I represented my country and both of those athletes well and truly outperformed me and I'm an able-bodied person. So that, that to me is not quite where the Paralympic movement should have gone. Uh, and, and, the, and the other thing, the professionalism, you know, the, the biggest component of integrity for Paralympic sport is the classification system. Without that, the games just don't exist. And it has also now become the biggest barrier to participation for developing countries. Uh, we had an example last year where we had Kiribati come to Australia with an athlete, uh, two athletes that need to be classified. Then COVID hit. It cost us $30,000 to accommodate them for nine months to get them home. So, I mean, we're talking about extraordinary circumstances, but to one of these guys was a double leg amputee. You didn't need to bring him halfway around the world to sit in front of a panel of three people for five minutes to say, oh, you're, you're a double leg amputee. Yes, we knew that. The other gentleman was totally blind, had no vision, and he had to come the same distance. And then just because of the classification system, it took them nine months, and then COVID hit, nine months away from their families before they could get home. And now they can't get to the games again because of COVID because there's no airline that's flying in and out of Kiribati. And the government said, well, if you do leave, you can't come back. So... You know, it's it's a different landscape we're dealing with, but I am a little disappointed um, in terms of what Paralympic sport was initially intended by um, those people who set it up initially, and it, it is a landscape now for the, the less disability you have, the more you are more highly, uh, high, the higher the chance of you being, excuse me, being selected to represent your country. Yeah. Um, and, and the identification of these athletes is problematic in developing countries, Tim.
Chris, you mentioned there, obviously, there, there is a fair gap between the wealthier countries and, and some of the countries that you represent in Oceania. Just on the reasons for not going, is it because you don't think the Paralympics should be going ahead in Tokyo because of the pandemic? Or is, there, is it because of the gap between the, the richer and poorer countries? Uh, it's a bit of both, Tim. I mean, from a personal perspective, it's, it's personally saying, you know, in this current environment where the world has got so many issues, um, I just don't think the game should have gone ahead. I, look, you know, having said that, the flip side of what I've just said is that it has been such a nice relief to be able to turn on the television and watch athletes rejoice in their sporting performances. I know how hard these athletes have trained and they deserve every opportunity to go and showcase their wares. Um, so I fully respect that. But it was just a personal choice for me to say the environment is not right. And I just know how hard the Japanese people have worked to get there. And to be able to say um, that we can't take everybody there is really disappointing. Uh, I really do think these games have highlighted the difference between the haves and the have-nots. I guess the biggest disappointment too, Tim, is the lack of respect that some of the athletes are showing to uh, others by saying, oh, my sacrifices are worthwhile. You know, there, there are no sacrifices in sport. I, you hear it you know, every time an athlete, not every time, a significant number of athletes get up and say, oh, my sacrifices were worthwhile. There is no sacrifice. I mean, one of my previous roles has been working with the Invictus Games team. These people are employed to do a job. They sacrifice limbs. They sacrifice life. They sacrifice family time. Um, you know, the people who represent our country in defence systems that go away and uh, don't come back the same people, that's a sacrifice. Nobody for – I've always said this to every athlete I've ever coached. No one forces you to be here. And no one knows that better than Patria. You know, all the shoulder surgery. She made choices to say, I can overcome this and come back a better athlete. She made those choices. But I would, you know, I can ask Patria, did you feel like it was a choice? Because to me, sacrifice indicates a negativity about what you're doing. And that's the one thing you want to eliminate from an athlete's thinking is anything that's negative. You need them to go into a competition in a positive framework. And I'm sure Patria would agree with me 100%. Yeah, absolutely, Nani. I, I'm totally on the same page there. And actually, I, I get similarly frustrated when and when athletes talk about sacrifices and, and it's well and truly your choice. Um, and yeah, I totally, totally agree there. So I think, um, you know, no one makes you do sport. You do it because you love it and you want to achieve it, achieve something. But um, there's, there's, there's no um, sacrifice there, choices you make to be, become the best you can be. Absolutely, Patria. And the other thing is a lot of people don't realise, Tim, um, and again, Patria is you know, part of the process. These athletes get paid tens of thousands of dollars a year to train. You know, they're funded to go and do this job. So it's their job. You know, And again, the flip side of having COVID experience is that people have lost their jobs. People have made choices to go into small businesses. And those businesses have been, you know, I've met, met people that have gone into business and invested hundreds of thousands of dollars. They now have nothing to their name. Um, so, you know, I think I've just really reflected a lot this year, Tim, and coming back to your question about why I'm not going, I'm playing a distant role. I'm still supporting those athletes and coaches that I've been working with, but it's a very different, uh, reflective time for me at the moment. Chris, uh, it sounds like you're a little disillusioned uh, about the way sport oh, is going. Much. Yeah. Very much so. Um, I'm, look, I'm, tr I'm just delighted that we've seen some outstanding performances in the pool. I, I just love seeing athletes perform, Tim. Um, I think we're gradually getting on top of the drugs situation, so, and that's been a huge amount of work over decades. So, I, But I think we are slowly 
bit by bit winning that space. Um, you know, technology, well, technology is technology. People are complaining about the fact that people have got running shoes now that they can perform in. Well, you know, have a look at the cyclists and the investment they're putting into bikes. I don't have a problem with that. As long as everybody's got access to it. Uh, and again, I think that's highlighted the the difference between, uh, particularly in the Paralympic space, between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and I'll give you a quick example of where the disillusionment comes, Tim. You know, <clears throat> if we just reflect for a moment on next year's Commonwealth Games, you know, I'm, I'm looking through the selection criteria, and it states currently that to make the Paralympic Games next, uh, sorry, the Commonwealth Games Para events next year, the qualification period started on the 31st of December 2020 and concludes on the 31st of December 2021. Now, this whole year we've had COVID issues. The developing countries haven't had a chance to A, be classified, and B, to get a performance um, in the system. So after the Paralympic Games, all of those results will be collated and they'll determine which athletes are likely to go to the Games. If you want to make the... English uh, athletics team, the qualification period opens on the 1st of January 2022 and concludes on the 12th of June uh, next year. So the parity between para sport and able-bodied sport is still a long way from from equal, and we're trying to address that now. Otherwise, we're just going to see Australia uh, and England and Canada and uh, a few of those countries that are well-developed, they'll turn up and they'll dominate the Commonwealth Games. And with the Commonwealth Games being such a proactive community group in terms of uh, promoting sport for para-athletes and the integrated approach they take during those games is fabulous. We're just going to, you know, it's going to, we're going to cut off our nose to spite our face if we don't open up the opportunities for para-athletes to A, be classified, and B, to have a chance to compete. So, yeah, there's a lot of, I've been very disillusioned, Tim. Um, you know, as I, I keep reiterating, I will never deny an athlete a chance to be um, to, to be the best they can be and ne- never deny a coach the access to education that will help them produce a better athlete. But, boy, have we got, we've still got a lot of hurdles to overcome in para-sport in terms of, you know, getting the right group of athletes there to showcase para-sport. I'm glad you um, brought up the Commonwealth Games and, and just how um, special it is that the, the para-events are incorporated into the, the program and, um, as you may be aware, I'm chef de mission for the, the Commonwealth Games team for Birmingham next year. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest things I love about the Games is, is that integration of the para-athletes. And to me, they're just part of the team. Well, and, and Patria, you know, I can remember times when we were both employed here. Well, initially, you were here as an athlete at the AIS and I was employed at the AIS. And, and you know the approach we always took was total integration. You know, the athletes that walked around, they might have been part of our power program, but they were AIS athletes wearing an AIS badge, and it was totally integrated. And as an athlete, you accepted them fully as athletes. And we are still not getting that from a governance perspective in sport across the country, uh, some of the countries and some of the world world citizens that, you know, promoting para-sport engagement, but they haven't quite grasped the concept of doing it properly. So, look, from a personal perspective, I couldn't be more delighted that someone like yourself who has been part of that integrated system here in Australia is going to he- showcase um, and head up the team um, because I have full confidence that not only will you embrace the para-athletes from Australia, but you will embrace para-sport from across the Commonwealth. And, and that's such a big step for us is to, to make sure that we promote that in the right way. Um, I only had a, a link up last night with the Birmingham University to, to say how can we do this better from a Birmingham University perspective in terms of promoting this throughout the community in England of the opportunity that they will have by bringing the para-athletes into the Games. 
Uh, Chris, uh, just before we let you go, are you looking forward to, to watching the Paralympics and, and seeing how they turn out? I, I guess there was a, a similar amount of nervousness heading into the Olympic Games and they obviously turned out to be pretty good. I, I just wonder, have you got the same optimism as you prepare for the Paralympics? I'm going to be really honest, guys. I didn't expect the Olympics to go as well as they have. Um, I think there's been a nice focus on performance and athlete um, athlete feel and athlete culture. I, I've loved hearing, you know, uh, Peter Bolt talk about you know, the gratitude that he has for Australia. And, you know, he finished fourth at the Games, but you, it, it was a joyful moment for him to show his appreciation for his country. And, and I think what people will realise is the athletes that have talked about sacrifice, they're not the moments that they'll remember the most. It's the gratitude and the team camaraderie and, you know, what um, what the Decathlon boys did last night in terms of togetherness and working towards a common goal. Those sorts of things are the things that I've loved. Um, so the games, I mean, I'm a sports nut. We, we, we know that. And you can't help get caught up in it all, which is great. I honestly thought there was a chance that they – the commercial expectations of the Olympics and um, the, the the agreement they had with the organising committee in Tokyo and the IPC, all of those commitments really have closed off by the end of these games. And I thought if things didn't go well and there was a COVID outbreak amongst the community, they could have easily cancelled the Paralympic Games. I'm 100% confident that won't happen now. So I'm delighted that in the same way that Australian coaches and athletes have had the chance to go and do what they've been training for, so will our para-athletes. Um, and, and the Australian Paralympics, well, sorry, Paralympics Australia now they're called, um, have done an outstanding job in ensuring safety and preparing our athletes uh, to be go, to go over there and focus on performance in a safe environment. They, they've done an incredible amount of work behind the scenes. So I'm just hoping that Channel 7 pick up this and showcase it the way they have the Olympic Games because, uh, you know, Tim, I, I've never – people have often said, wouldn't you have rather go to the Olympics? And I can honestly say not one of those Paralympic experiences I've had, and I've been to eight games, would I swap for an Olympic experience. There is a gratitude that the Paralympic athletes have that is different – um, I don't hear them talk about sacrifices as much as I do about Olympic athletes. They understand, you know, they've had significant issues in their lives to overcome and they've chosen to get on with life. Um, a lot of our para-athletes, you know, are BMX riders or quad bike riders or whatever, uh, and they've had accidents, but they've chosen to get on and play sport because that's the nature of their their uh, personality. So, yeah, look, I am really looking forward to the Paralympic Games now, Tim, uh, for the Australian athletes to get over there. They'll do well. I think they'll do like the Australian Olympic team. Is, you know, they've outperformed their performances in the last – well, and they're heading towards the best games ever. Uh, I think our Paralympic space – is going to be a good space. But again, I want to reinforce it's because we live in a very, very privileged country where we provide and support our athletes way above what any many other countries in the world have the opportunity to do. And we have been relatively COVID-free. So our athletes have been able to train in safe environments, whereas other countries have been closed down. And, and I think if we look at some of the countries, their athletes haven't performed at the Olympics because of the nature of where they've been and the lockups they've had. So we are a very fortunate country, and I, I just look forward to seeing what our athletes can do at the Paralympic Games. Good on you, mate. Thanks very much for joining us, Chris. Uh, great Always insight a pleasure, into Tim and Patria. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, Patria. So, <laughs> chef, chef de mission for ne- the Commonwealth Games next year for the Australian team. So, she's got a huge responsibility. But, uh, yep. Chris, once again, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Tim. Take care. Thanks, Danny. Bye. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. 
Well, joining us now is Paralympic swimmer Ahmed Kelly, who's been selected for his third Paralympics in Tokyo. Ahmed competed in four events in both London and Rio, and he has an incredible backstory. Born in Baghdad, raised in Australia, and that's just the start with a double arm and leg deficiency. Uh, Ahmed, your story has been well documented. Uh, do you draw inspiration from your own story, or do you draw inspiration from others around you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, others around me, but also the the goals that I set for uh, for myself to try and achieve. Um, yeah, and that's what really gets me motivated. I always try and um, yeah set goals and be able to try and um, achieve them as, as best as I can. And what are your goals in the lead up to the Paralympics? Well, it's that elusive gold medal at the uh, Paralympic Games. I still haven't been able to do it. Um, so yeah, just keeping. Uh, trying to work hard at it. This is my third go, so hopefully I'm in for a chance. What is the, the, the biggest obstacle to you? Sense of the unknown, the competitors, what is it for you that, that daunts you most? I, I guess it's, uh, yeah, the, maybe the, the sense of the unknown, but at this stage, like, you prepare so hard to try and cover all bases, but we all know Paralympic Games is uh, you should be able to expect the unexpected, but uh, at the end of the day, is I know what I need to do. Uh, I know the, the the training that we have been putting on will give us a great chance to be on that podium. Uh, but, yeah, that's all the things that I can control. Everything else is out of my control. But as long as I can do the things that I can control, I'll be pretty uh, soaked with it. Um, you you have a great, um, I suppose, camaraderie in the, the Paralympic swimming team and I've watched you um, duel against a Grant Scooter Patterson over the years um, and, see <laughs> yes. the, and see the joy you two have um, being in the pool together. Uh, can you just, I suppose, explain a bit about that camaraderie and how it helps you um, perform at your best? Yeah, so um, Scoot or Grant, Grant, as most people would know him as, but uh, as, as you get to know him more often, you, call him, uh, you start calling him Scoot or Carl. Uh, but we've known each other for well and truly over 10 years now. And uh, I know I'm very focused and quite serious about my own business, but he's very laid back and chilled. And uh, he still does an um, incredible job considering that the approach is quite laid back. So I guess we really bounce off each other. And uh, I just love uh, his attitude towards life and also the pool. And, uh, and yeah, if I can kind of ha have a great time with him and it kind of shines in the pool for me as well, which is pretty cool. One of your, uh, your quotes that I, I like, you know, it's important that kids know there are people out there like me. How important is it for you to be that representative model that people can see and and witness doing something incredible like you're doing? Yeah, and that's the thing, uh, Tim, like we live in a world that's not 100% perfect and the more people that realise it, the more that uh, they can accept it. And I want people who who have a disability or who look just like me to know they have just, as, uh, just, uh, just the amount of opportunity to be able to be successful, whether it is in life or in the pool. I want them to give it a crack because uh, if you don't give it a crack, you'll never know. And, um, yeah, I just want them to see what I've been able to do and say, hang on, if Ahmed can do it, I should be able to do it. Um, and, uh, and there are people there to, to able to support them. That's the thing. There's, there, there's support around this network to be able to achieve uh, success or Paralympic Games, if, if that's what you really want to do. I mean, you talk about the network there. Just how has Paralympic sport changed your life? 
Uh, Paralymp- I mean, like if I wasn't in part of Paralympics, well, I've got no idea what I'd be doing right now, to be honest with you. But it's just been great. From the moment I think uh, I decided I wanted to do swimming, uh, Paralympics Australia organised the fact that I could go to Richmond in, in Melbourne to be able to do my first few sessions to then be in a position to get classifications done. Uh, then uh, point me in the right direction of like people like um, e, um, Ian Pope, who is part of the Melbourne Big Centre. And, um, yeah, that's where it all really started uh, at Melbourne Big Centre Swim Club. My high performance um, training started because originally I was in the in the country uh, just doing a few sessions, but we just started, uh, I really want to be focused for London and, yeah, got into a team like Melbourne Big Centre and really, really worked hard. And uh, if I needed physio, if I needed massage, all those sort of things were accessible. All I had to do was really ask and embrace this opportunity. Have you been exposed to many people who are worse off than you? Because you know, you look at you and you think, gee, what you're doing is quite incredible. I'm not sure that I could do it. Have, have you come across people where you think, gee, that's incredible? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Tim. Um, I mean, they, you just don't need to look any further than the Paralympic Games and you look at the lower-class athletes and how they do what they do is incredible. But even, like, the higher classes, there are people who also do lots of different – have lots of – sorry, have lots of different challenges and they're able to compete really well and I'm sure they, they do pretty well outside of the pool as well. Um, yeah, and then also I looked at, at the guys who have vision impairment and how they go about their business is quite incredible too. So, I mean, for me, I've been surrounded in Paralympic sports and being able to see how people with a disability get around and do their own business, and that also inspires me to do better. Um, and you've overcome and live with uh, challenges every day that would defeat a lot of people. So what motivates you to... I suppose, get in the pool every day, train up and down um, and get out on the world stage and do your thing. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Like everybody has their challenges and it's quite tough. Uh, For me, I do have those challenging days. But again, going back to my goal setting, I'm very determined to try and get on that podium. But luckily enough for me, I I mean, I went through the last eight months outside of the COVID situation, I went through a very difficult uh, scenario here. Uh, um, And basically I had amazing family friend, family and friends who are able to support me. And um, sometimes you just need people who really believe in you and to get you back on track to focus on your goals. One of the things you've been doing outside the pool, of course, you've been doing a degree in, and you want to be a journalist, a sports commentator, and you've, you've yep. done, done a little bit of work experience at the ABC. So is that something you'd like to do in the future? I've always enjoyed sport, Tim, and uh, I've been very lucky to have the opportunity to work at ABC here in Canberra. And, uh, yeah, watching how the professionals go about their business was fantastic. And uh, I remember the first few days I was totally out of my league, uh, even though I did study journalism. But it was great great to see them uh, give me the time and show me the, the skills that they've been able to do so well. So I've really enjoyed it. It's a different side. Uh, to uh, swimming up and down uh, the pool, but it's probably something that I want to pursue uh, at the end of uh, uh, Tokyo for sure. When you when you're swimming, do you sometimes commentate to yourself or races Definitely that you're not. watching? No. Races <laughs> that you're watching. I don't really have that time in the pool to be commentating myself. When but, you're training, um, when you're training. What I, I remember uh, when I when I do watch, like let's say the footy or the swimming, uh, I really listen on what the commentators focus on. 
and try and see myself saying similar things to what they are saying. Um, but yeah, just really focus on what they've been able to focus on in a specific group. Because as a as an athlete, you have lots of different focuses to be able to perform. But as a broadcast journal, you focus on totally different things as well. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Got to talk for a long time. Non-stop. Exactly. <laughs> you got to do learn, and you got to know. You got to know what you're talking about as well in that sport or uh, whatever you are broadcasting. You have to have a really good knowledge, and that's what I've learned working at ABC. Is that yeah, you you can never uh, read enough or learn enough. That's for sure. Or ask too many uh, too many questions, really. Too. Um, it's been a pretty challenging um, last eighteen months for everyone all around the world. Um, obviously, we're everyone's happy that Tokyo is going ahead and that you guys will be able to get out there and do your thing. Uh, what are you expecting when you get over there? Uh, Petrea, it's going to be one of the strangest games that I'm I'm going to be part of. Uh, but it, it, as long as I get to wear uh, the green and gold uh, and the gold cap, I'm pretty happy. Uh, there's going to be a lot of restrictions, no doubt about that. Um, but if you focus too much on those sort of things, it's going to be quite a tough games, but I'm really trying to focus on performance. Uh, the fact that I have the opportunity to wear the green and gold again um, and swim for Australia is, an, is such a great honour. So I'm more focused on those sort of things rather than so much the restrictions. How many events will you eventually compete in? Because uh, once you qualify for one, sometimes you you can be slotted into another event. You competed at four in London, four in Rio. How many have you got in Tokyo? Yeah, so at this stage, given the whole COVID restrictions in place at the moment, uh, we want to attack the best events. Uh, and for me, it'll probably be two events only at these games. At this stage, it's the 50-metre uh, breaststroke on day one and the 150-meter individual medley for the SM3 category on day four. Day four, yeah. So when you say 150 meters for an individual medley, how does that work? So with the lower class, uh, they deem butterfly to be a really tough stroke for us to uh, complete uh, because majority of uh, – more because of the butterfly kick action. It's mm-hmm. very difficult for us to, to do that. So they get rid of the butterfly leg and we all start on the backstroke leg, uh, breaststroke, and finish off with freestyle. So my, fr- uh, my freestyle is a little bit different to everybody else. Uh, so it's more that butterfly action with the arms, but a double breaststroke kick, uh, hence why it was a freestyle event, not a butterfly event because, yeah, of that double breaststroke kick. Having watched you swim a lot, uh, you use a lot of energy when you when you're swimming. Unfortunately, all my <laughs> strokes use a lot of energy, and I've got to work really, really hard in training to make sure I'm fit enough to get through those three grueling uh, strokes because they're not very fluent strokes. Neither of them are fluent strokes. It's almost like a stop-start action, but uh, it's one of those challenges. And I'm prepared to work really hard to to make sure I uh, can get over the line as fast as I can. What are your plans post-Tokyo? Ahmed, are you going to keep going for, for another go-around? Well, I haven't really thought that far. Um, at this stage, I will be. Uh, but uh, depending on the results in Tokyo, uh, then I'll make a, a final decision. So if you go really well? Why stop? Do? Why stop? <laughs> if you're on a roll, you keep going until your your body tells you, okay, it's enough. <laughs> Good on you. Thanks very much for joining uh, both Petra and myself. It's been great having a chat to you, Ahmed, and, and all the best in Tokyo. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you so much, Petra. It's great to, uh, to be on board.
All the best, Salmon. Hello, my name is Katrina Cicchini, previously known as Katrina Lewis. I am a two-time medalist at the 2004 and 2008 Paralympic Games for swimming. I am classed as an S10. I have cerebral palsy over my right side. I started my career at the age of 14, with the Commonwealth Games being my first international games, followed by World Championships in Argentina in 2002. I then continued to represent Australia consistently until 2010. I currently work in the assessment and review team at Sport Integrity Australia, and I passionately strive to make athletes safer and protected within sport. My top tips to staging a clean and gold are, there is no wrong in always checking what you consume. Be firm, set limits and stick to them. Have a strong sense of self-worth and self-respect. Increasing control over one's life makes the path for success. And only you are responsible for you. Thanks for listening to Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast series. I'm Tim Gable alongside the triple Olympic gold medalist, Patria Thomas, and we'll be back in the next couple of weeks uh, to have a look at the Paralympics and I'm sure they're going to be successful. See you soon. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.